Hi there, my friends, and welcome to the Brent Poland Podcast with me, Brent, where I get to have a discussion, debate, internal thoughts about the human condition, meaning of life, the past, the present, and the future, and generally, whatever takes my fancy. Hi there, my friends, and welcome to the Brent Poland Podcast, Season 2, the sequel Okay, so over the next couple of weeks, um, I'm going to release a podcast every week, which is going to look at green issues. And in particular, looking at the campaigning of which I'm involved in, and the campaigning of which my political party, the Green Party, are involved in, in the lead up to the upcoming council elections in May. It's been quite, um, it's been quite a, a year. It's been quite a year being a, a public sector worker, a frontline worker, an educator, a parent, uh, a green uh, a campaigner. It's been it's been quite a journey that we've been on. A lot's happened. We, we've had Brexit go through, but we're still seeing the impact of it. We have had 140,000 deaths at the moment. Our society seems to be on a very different course now, and we, we've seen a tumultuous year of of culture wars, of division in society. We've also seen the positive. We've we've also seen people step up. We've also seen selflessness. We've seen heroes, like Captain Tom, for instance. We've seen our NHS heroes. We've seen our frontline workers, our police, our fire service, my colleagues in education. And we've seen ordinary everyday people like, you, you know, your retail staff and, and your delivery drivers, your postman, your bin man. It's been, it's been quite an eye-opener into the, the heart and soul of our society. And, and certainly more... There's a greater consciousness and awareness now of, of what our society is and, and what direction it takes. The last year has proven to me, even more so, that as a young a young father and a parent, as an educator of, 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 of decent experience, that I'd like the world to take a greener turn. And it's made me more committed to my green roots. And, and not just from an environmental point of view, because I get tired of that kind of stereotype of you know the green guys are just environmentalists i'm a socialist i'm a proud socialist i come from working class family i'm proud of those roots i come from working class area i grew up in a housing estate in many ways i'm self-made in many ways i'm self-educated and i'm willing to be educated even more but i want to give back i enjoy helping people i enjoy looking after people it's why i chose a profession that does that and as I've got more and more into the, the, the murky mire of politics, um, both local and national, I can see where things have gone wrong in this country. I can see that some people are divisionally making the country worse for their own benefit and gain. And I can see others tirelessly working to undo that. There is definite forces driven by money and power who are lining themselves up to undo, in my estimation, some of the social gains of the last century. You know, people attacking the union movements and attacking people's standard of living and their wages and attacking their rights and the media, you know, the, 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 the way that we've been put against each other. The first issue I want to look at for me is housing. And housing is an important issue. As a person who has a geographical background, I understand, you know, how complex housing is. You cannot study and talk about housing unless you talk about transport, you talk about education, 
you you talk about uh, employment you talk about the geographical location in relation to services the size of the settlement and, and i teach this theory to children about geographical settlement theories and hierarchical theories and when i start looking at maps you can see how industrial revolution set up this country the way it did you know you had your towns and cities next to where your resources were and I was actually doing a lesson the other day where I was, you know, trying to teach a history lesson to children about, you know, why Stanton Ironworks, which is just down the road from here, was located next to a coal mine. Well, of course it is, because that's where you you had the fuel. And when you look at the correlation between the proximity of the energy source of fossil fuels to where industry was located, of course there's a positive correlation. And it's interesting when you have those children who have no awareness of the importance of the Industrial Revolution and yet they grew up in an area between Derby and Manchester, which is the beating heart of the birth of the Industrial Revolution, which ushered in the modern era of industry. And yet they have no awareness of it. Yet, you know, they have railway carriages in the middle of their their islands outside of Tesco. They've got canals and railways and, and they have factories and old mills everywhere. The evidence is there. The evidence in the two large cities in the, in the East Midlands conurbation next to them is there from the names of the places to even the, even the industries that still exist um, just barely by a thread. And it's so obvious that many of their ancestors came here as a result of the Industrial Revolution in the same way of rural to urban migration. We saw our cities develop during that Industrial Revolution to become the cities we know now where a little railway stop 20 years later would become a small village and then a small town and then would become a thriving metropolis. I mean, Manchester is one of the classic examples of that, of how big a a town can grow almost overnight. And that's the process that's happening in parts of China now and and India, where you have mass urbanisation. And that's how a lot of our housing stock, our housing stock was built during this industrial revolution and then um, the early 20th century and, and between the wars. But we stopped building houses as a nation in, in, in many aspects in the 60s and 70s. And even some of that was, you know, the urban inner city experiments of tower blocks. And oh, dear gosh. And now what we're seeing is counter-urbanization. We're seeing that we don't live in industrial society any longer. We live in a post-Fordist um, counter-urbanized society where because of the motor car, we now are and the two dual-income households, people have spread out away from the city centres and we've had urban sprawl in the last generation where we keep tacking housing developments onto the sides and keep spreading out and spreading out to such an extent in this East Midlands area, there's very little gap between the Derby and Nottingham corridor. And that has happened in places like Manchester to Bradford to 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 places like um, Leeds. You know, there's very little, and and Bradford to Leeds is practically one place now. You know, Manchester and Sheffield, you've basically got the Peak District in between, but your Stockport's expanded. You're starting to see, you know, corridors growing up, and you're starting to see cities merge into regions, and and there's very little land between them, which of course mirrors the United States of America. You've got New Jersey to New York, you know, the eastern seaboard is practically unbroken. Same as Japan, where Tokyo, Osaka is, is all one big urban complex. Los Angeles being a classic example of that. So we are living in a very different society. A society that has, in many ways, you know, more space and we want more space now. People want to move out of the cities and we've seen depopulation of cities. 
And that has driven into this commuter society. It is this commuter society that, that wants its cake and wants to eat it. It wants the space. It wants the, the, the little idyllic bit of countryside, but then also wants to get a connection to where employment is. And you have this massive disconnect between where you work and where you live. Whereas previous generations during the Industrial Revolution, you had you lived and worked in your community. You, 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 your local community was actually built sometimes. The railway cottages were built by the railway company. The miners' cottages were built by the mining company. Your, your ironworks company in this local area built the whole housing estate. And people worked in those self-contained communities. The housing was connected to the job, which was connected. And that, ironically, was lower carbon. And in many ways, one of the green mantras is, is that we need to return to some of the ideas of the past. And that doesn't mean we're cave dwellers. That doesn't mean we're like living in the past. That means like, well, before fossil fuels, what did we use? Well, we used water and wind power. Funny that, isn't it? Every village and every town used to have water and wind power. Well, what can we use now? Water and wind power, windiest, windiest place in all of Europe. You know, we complain about the weather. We've got it. I mean, yes, we've got solar. And solar cells have got better, and it's not our primary going to be like our Australia or, or, or you know, countries like that, which have sun or California all the time, right? But any child can tell you a pocket calculator can work in a dull day. So we do have natural abundances of resources, and some of them was actually the resources we used before the Industrial Revolution and fossil fuels. And we need to start thinking about where we work and where we live. And the internet's a game changer. The gig economy, the, 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 the new economy that's coming and automation. We are, we are living in a crossroads of civilization at the moment. And COVID has kick-started, I believe, a new wave of high technology, a new wave of, of different types of working, different types of living. But what is our government doing? <laughs> it's still living in a very different version of the past. It's still living in an industrial past. It wants to build you know, high-speed rail, for instance, so that people can exp- extend the commuter belt. And yet those that's for it claim it's low-carbon railway. I tell you what's low-carbon railway. Not making the journey in the first place because you live close to where you work. <laughs> That's what I've done. I live very close to where I work. I can cycle. I can run. I I, I can sometimes take take the the hybrid car there. Or the I'm looking to buy an electric one, but they are quite expensive, aren't they? <laughs> they're extremely expensive, and maybe they're not the answer. Maybe they're not the answer. So I try my best, and 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 so does so is our lifestyle. We're trying to live locally, shop locally be local in in all the things that we do in order to try and be as sustainable as possible and it's tough when you've got for instance i would like to make my my house more environmentally friendly by having better insulation no government grants for that these days you know i'd like to have solar panels on my roof that's expensive i'd like to have a family electric car which require meets all my needs but on public sector wages, it's just beyond me at the moment. And yet I am punished for trying to do the right thing. And that's where our government have this wrong. They still continually get this wrong. They are rewarding people for getting on a railway and, and paying out 13, 14 grand to go on a railway all year long to go and get wages in, in somewhere like London and cheaper house prices in the north. And what's the solution to this? To not solve that problem to not develop the area. They come out with jingoistic ideas of levelling up. It will not level up. If you want to level up, you create employment where you need that employment. And you need the housing where you need it. And when it comes to housing, what they're doing is there's the wrong people are building the wrong houses in the wrong place for the wrong people. 
We need affordable housing. We need not just to build, build, build. We need housing that's appropriate. We need more bungalows, for instance. Housing, because we've got an older population, an old population with mobility issues, and yet property developers don't build bungalows. Why don't they build bungalows? Because bungalows you don't get per square yard. You, you don't get the same return and profit. So who's building our houses? Companies whose only primary objective isn't to build social housing. It isn't to improve our society. It's the bottom line. It's the same thing over and over again we see. You know, it's profit. It's, it's the market. And yet that discriminates against the first-time buyers who struggle to get on the property market. Even during the COVID crisis, we've seen property prices actually increase. The average property in the UK is £300,000, yet the average wage is roughly £27,000. Now, if you have an average wage, £27,000, multiplied by three, you're talking maybe £60,000, £70,000 that you can afford of a house. Now, if you've got dual income household of average people, so that's two people in a house of 70000 you can still only afford a house of one hundred and forty grand. That's if you're an average wage earner. But what does somebody come out of university with 60, 70 grand worth of debt each? How are they going to get on the property market? Unless their parents are wealthy, unless they come from an upper middle class to an upper class family, we're going to see a generation of people who are living in rent accommodation. And we know we've seen so many. How many programs do you have to watch to see landlords from hell? I mean, I lived in student housing back in the day. And I know, I know I've lived in houses myself. I've rented before uh, I was able to buy. And and it, it, we are dealing with discrimination of a different form. And that leads to then, hold on, housing is expensive, so only wealthy people can live in, in housing areas. What what do you notice about the schools? The schools with the wealthy housing are better schools. So what are you getting there? You're not getting social mobility. And it comes back to housing. It comes back to access to housing. And then what we're seeing in areas like London we're seeing social cleansing. We're seeing people who've been born and bred and lived in an area all their life being forced out because they just can't afford to pay the rent or equally they can't afford to buy a house in the area. We're seeing their children being forced away. And this is, this is, this is sad because what? The government have allowed Russian billionaires to come over and flood the, flood the London property market? We, we've seen the, the, the right to buy scheme, for instance, just decimate the stock of this country to this so little social housing. Between 1980 and 1984, Margaret Thatcher was building 220,000 council houses and social homes. In the last five years, this current government have built 10,000. That is absolutely criminal. And yet we have an undercurrent of people who just simply cannot access the property market. And some of those individuals work in key services. Some of those individuals are teachers and firemen and police officers. So you have communities now who are devoid of some of those key workers because they can't afford to live in the area. They can't afford to live close to where they work. So what do they have to do? They have to get into the car and commute. And that fills the roads up. So this whole system that's been created is disjointed. It leads to unnecessary journeys. It leads to inefficiency. It leads to air pollution. The whole thing is just connected, isn't it? You know, it leads to commuting, which then leads to congestion on the railway lines, which then leads to, you know, the ticket prices, which then leads to, let's go and build a brand new, you know, 100, 100 250 mile hour railway that we need because we need capacity. All of this is to increase supply, increase supply, increase supply, but not look at the root causes and the demand. This is the thing, and that this demand can be changed. It's a simple law of economics. If we work smarter, if if we live and work more locally, 
And, and we've got hundreds of thousands of houses in the UK that property developers don't want to develop. Why? Because they're undesirable areas. So what's the solution? Bring those houses back to life. Bring these areas back to life. Bring these communities back to life. But you see, that's not the quick, easy profit. That is more difficult to do. And your local town planners, well, what you have is a situation where your local authorities are being put under huge pressure. So one example is our local area. Our local authority has to build 6,000 houses. It has to build 6,000 houses because the central government have dictated to them, you must build 6,000 houses. So what did they do? They sat down, they looked at a map and they went, where can we put these 6,000 houses? And you know what they strategically did? They thought to themselves, where can we put these houses to have the least path of resistance? They didn't think about floodplain because in two occasions they have put these houses on areas that flood one actually on the floodplain of the river trent next to a golf course which practically might as well be aqua golf course but they don't think about that they just think about the area and the people in the area and the people in the area are a little bit you know disaffected they're more likely to get away with it they didn't bank upon some conservationists in the area and the people in the area actually objecting they under underestimated that and brilliant to see one of those action groups stepping up and saying, no, we are going to protect our area. And they tried to petition. Second area they chose, very, very deprived area with child poverty of 40%. A sink estate, synonymous within the wider area for deprivation. And that's no slight on the people in the area. It's a neglected area from deindustrialization where it's just been neglected. And the people of the area are good, decent folk good, honest, decent folk, and they have nothing coming their way for generations. They have been left behind. And again, the powers that be, the local council thought, well, we're going to put it there, politically choosing it. A conservative council choosing a very working class area because they factored in there'll be less social mobility and less objections to that. They didn't bank again on some of the local residents who have community spirit and fight left in them, saying enough was enough and they want to protect their area. Now, what happened during lockdown? Well, the council continued their sham consultation. They continued a consultation with the local residents. And incidentally, when they consulted the local residents, the questions that they used... Now, I've got a decent amount of knowledge of town planning and country planning and geographical knowledge, and I consider myself a reasonably educated individual. I looked at those questions and even I was struggling to think, what are they talking about? Did they make their consultation accessible to the average person in the street? Hell no, they didn't, because they didn't really want the response that they got. And when they got the response they didn't want, which was the local population rising up, gathering together, and I'm so much respect for the individuals who did that. What was really humiliating was hearing our local MP, who's great at ignoring local people when it comes to consultations. And I will do a podcast about High Speed Rail on that. And there she was, Maggie Throop, MP for Arawash, who's never voted against her own government, never has, never will, as a whip, um, is completely loyal, which means we're not represented in our area, completely not represented. And although I'm a political opponent, I, I, I respect people of different political parties if they are a good MP, but I, I can't at the moment. I can't at the moment support my MP because they've never once stood up for the local area. And they were there, Use, yes, do this, do this, go and do this, yes, petition this. The gentleman behind the campaign group listen to myself and the advice I give him was that MP would just ignore. Go ahead and do it yourself. Get the local community. Get the local community to petition the local community. And I'm again so proud that they've taken it back and they've challenged the local authority. Now, why did the local authority 
um, do this. They did it because they're under pressure from a conservative government. It's a conservative local authority. And they were almost pleading with this line. We have to put these houses here because if we don't, the central government will put them anywhere. And what's their fear? Yes, you guessed it. Their fear is that those houses will go in their back garden, that they will go in their areas, which means that is a political decision to put that housing where what? There is less provision for services, school places, hospitals, education. They didn't think about all of those things and including environmental concerns such as next to a nature reserve, a reclaimed nature reserve and next to on a floodplain. This is the type of absolute farcical stuff that you see and you lift up your local newspaper and you see this a lot. This is why there's so many objections to so many housing developments because basically the property developers are calling the shots. The local councils are devoid of money and they're desperate because they're put under pressure by a central government who've got no awareness of the local area. So what's failing? The local politicians are failing the local people because they're not making decisions based on logic, evidence and common sense. The central government's failing because they just seem to think they can build their way out of this. Why? Well, Mr. Jenrick, classic example. Mr. Jenrick, the head of the UK housing minister. Well, wasn't he caught? Wasn't he caught? Yes, a big property developer gave £12,000 to the Conservative Party just before and during the election and just before he changed his mind in a massive property development in the Isle of Dogs in Millwall in London. Now, you would expect that a minister would resign over that. <laughs> You'd be expecting wrong. And I'm sorry to say that I think a lot of our problems stem from what we now call the chemocracy in this country. The chemocracy of, I mean, do you say brown envelopes and backhanders? Do you say that how do you grease the wheels of democracy? There are serious concerns about the nature of our democracy and how these planning applications are put in. But when our housing minister is caught like that, he should have resigned. He should have resigned. And what is the response from government? To cut planning laws. To cut planning laws. Now, I grant you, we need a more efficient way of doing housing. But some of these changes that they're talking about are actually quite dangerous. And I have seen when you get to national priority infrastructure lights, high-speed rail, and the Toten sidings, the East Midlands um, station that they prefer, they want to build again on Zone 2 and Zone 3 floodplain, irrespective of the danger of climate change. Because they just see a patch of land and think, excellent, that's close to a road. Let's plop 5,000 houses on there. And in that instance, some of that is an old army barracks. I agree, an old army barracks could be reconditioned into housing. But again, only if you have education in the area, ask the local residents, and you factor in how the area works. This idea of just plopping houses where willy-nilly where you want them is bad planning. It's bad organisation. And again, what would it lead to? Congested roads, is air pollution, creaking infrastructure. It needs that principles of good geography. Planning needs good principles and balanced thinking and logical thinking, weighing up the pros and cons and the benefits of putting the housing there and making sure if you do, that you have the services available, that the housing fits and it is appropriate to the people of the area. Because we are missing a huge amount of appropriate housing. And therefore, you're left with these housing estates which hire the wrong people in the wrong place. The Green Party itself has some excellent um, housing policies. So, you know, one of ours, like H0202, um, to give local communities a stronger voice in local housing policy. We do believe in the local, in the, in, in the local, knowing the local conditions. So I do understand and I do empathise with some of the pressure of my local councils are under. I do get it. 
But again, for me, they're making the wrong decisions based upon their own political expediency rather than looking at the logical and looking at the evidence and looking at the right place for the right housing at the right time. For the right people, of course. And for us, we have to stabilise house prices. We have to we have to look at why we have house prices um, too, too unaffordable in some areas. And increasing supply is not going to help with that because, again, if you're building the wrong type of housing, you're not going to decrease the price. So for us, it is about balancing the needs of, of our society to try and have homes that are fit for, for the 21st century. We need to look at retrofitting homes. We need to look at the nature of our homes and how much energy they're using. And when you look at the, the conditions of some of the homes that are being rented, they're not fit to rear children in. We've seen that during our, our, our lockdown period. And I know as a teacher, when I look at some of the conditions of some of the children are living in, they're not fit for 21st century consumption. We need to be responsible when building near environmental hazards, especially building on floodplain. What worries me about the government now clearing the way for doing away with regulations is that will lead to more cowboy builders building in inappropriate places. And again, with national infrastructure, I've seen for too many times houses just tacked on and we'll just get round to some sort of engineering. We'll get round to clearing trees. And we're seeing this too often as well, where, you know, again, with high-speed rail and with the inappropriate housing developments coming with that, they're taking extra roads and and we're building 27, 27 million pounds, billion pounds worth of roads. Why do we need all those roads? Where are those roads going? Those roads are going for long-term commuter people, you know, on flyovers and flypasses and bypasses so that people can get in and out of a city quicker. Why do they need to get in and out of the city quicker? As our city centres become less retail, remember our city centres were once town centres, which were town centres full of people that thrived, full of people and services are there and infrastructures in our town centres. So as retail declines, certainly one of the things I'd like to investigate in my local communities is two large town in my local, two towns in my local communities with hundreds of potential homes in town centres that already have infrastructures and buses there. And that doesn't need to be, you know, extra houses built on the edge of town. There they are already. There is that retail space, those old warehouses. And, you know, we have to be creative. We have to start looking at the space that we have and looking after. So I think they're wrong when they say, you know, it is all about build back better, build, build, build. Because that's also got a carbon cost. Concrete is a hugely, hugely environmentally damaging um, CO2 releaser. It's a massively damaging CO2 releaser. So we should be looking to reduce the amount of stuff that we build and looking at reconditioning what we have and looking at making the better of the space that we have. We have huge cities that have vacant areas that need to be better worked, better organised and better retrofitted rather than going out into a countryside, taking in a, a farmer's field and trying to get as many of those four-storey townhouses where your garden is, you know, you're walking over your neighbour's garden to try and get into your own car because you've got no garden front and back and your house is turning sideways to get as many onto a plot as possible. Those type of buildings. And the other thing we're seeing as well is that the, the, the building quality, the building quality is absolutely shameful. Friends of mine have bought new homes in some of these estates and the snag list is as long as your arm. That doesn't seem to be the quality in the building that they used to be because it's all about making the profit as quick as possible. I get that. I, my father worked in construction. My father worked in construction for 40, 50 odd years as a plasterer. He took pride in his work. He was he, And so did his building company. I know builders. I know independent small builders. And you see those independent small builders, they're the answer to our problems as well. People building their own houses and renovating their own houses, 
That's what we need to look at as well. I love watching those programs you see where you get somebody who has a little, you know, an old an old field on the back of somewhere and then they bang, they build some Swedish or a house German type of thing and that they've got the solar panels in there and they've got the heat re- exchange recycling. And you, all, and you look into that yourself and you go, wow, I'd love to have one of those grand designs type of houses. And then what stops you? What stops you is the plot of land. What stops you is that, you know, getting the plot of land is quite difficult because why? Because we have individuals who have land banked because they're holding on to land. And we have games where, where property developers and when it comes to infrastructure, like the National Rail HS2, for instance, they've bought that land anticipating that they're going to be used and then they're going to release it when they, it's needed at a profit, of course, because that's always what happens, isn't it? Inside knowledge and people holding on to the land because land has value. But all of a sudden land has value if somebody's going to put something beside it. And we too often we've seen, especially foreign money coming into this country, buying up and gobbling up our land. And that means the local authorities have their hands tied behind their backs. They can't they can't do developments because somebody holds on to the land. Because why? Be- because it's a profit. And yet the local community might need that land. So you may have an eyesore, an old factory sitting there because, and, and we had that situation where a, a French company called Saint-Cobain held on to an old ironworks site, holding out for profit for 10 years. Now local council couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't, they had old industrial land sitting there, you know, with brownfield development could be, could have been done, but the developer, the, uh, the company didn't want to, didn't want to do it. And they've got rights, do not get me wrong. Which brings me to the rights that we have. We have established rights in this country and a good system of local governance and trust in local governments to a certain extent. And that it's our job as local citizens to hold our local government to account, something that I am so proud to have seen two action groups do recently. And that's fine. But when you have a national government that overrides your local government and puts pressure and bullies your local government, that to me is not democracy. That to me is the opposite of what we have as in green principles because the people who should make the decisions better are the people who live and work and breathe life into the communities and the areas they live in. And to be dictated by national government on things like housing and have a company come in and just build houses where they want, to me that disenfranchises the local population and the local stakeholders. And we're seeing that happen far too often. So for housing for me, to repeat the mantra, the wrong houses are being built in the wrong place by the wrong people for the wrong people. For us as Greens, we do need to build houses, but the right type of houses in the right type of place for the right reasons, for the right people. Thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening, my friends. And if you enjoyed what you heard, then please like, share and subscribe. And any feedback you can give me would be more than appreciated. (laughs) Teachers love feedback. You can find me on Twitter at BrentPoland1. You can find me on YouTube at BrentPoland1. Funny enough, Instagram, my account is BrentPoland1. However, my Facebook is my local Arrowwash Green Party. And that is Arrowwash Green on Facebook. Thank you again, my friends.